I felt that three major sessions in one day was just too much. You see, I think there is a limit to the amount that people can take in. What I feel is this, that in fact um, this is a special weekend. People have made special preparations to come apart. They've paid to do it, and I think that it's no use my standing up and just speaking platitudes at the front. You know, because you've come to learn, and you've come because you want to be equipped in the fight that's ahead, and I'm trying my best to give as much information as possible during this time. I like to give good value for money, you know, in what I say. And therefore, as I prayed about it, I feel that the Lord told me that this afternoon should be entirely different and that we should have a film. So I chose the subject of the film this afternoon, which is on the life of John Wycliffe, or John Wycliffe, as he was probably called in his own day. And uh, I haven't seen this film, but I've heard that it's a very, very good one. And I think it's good to watch a film like this, because in Christian circles today, there's a tremendous amount of ignorance about lovely Christians who've lived in former generations. I mean, I mix with so many people, and they talk as if God's never done what he's doing today before. And it's just hooey. It's just nonsense. You know, God has been doing it in every generation. And in every generation, they thought they were the only ones. Oh, no, but this is different. No, it's not different. It's exactly the same. The one thing I must say is that in terms of solid, sheer, selfless dedication, our own generation doesn't come off too well. We live in a very noisy, tinsely generation who talk an awful lot. They're very flashy. They love to show how spiritual they are. But when you get down to nitty-gritty, deep-rooted Christianity, we're not very good. And my heart's desire is that we should indeed fulfill what the Bible says, to be a quiet people, minding our own business, doing our own work, but in every detail of our life, really showing forth the Lord. That's what I long for. But I find many Christians are fine if you meet them at a conference or if you meet them, you know, in passing. But when you then look at the details of their life, it's a real mess under there. And I feel we've got to start taking God at his word and not just being showy Christians, but in the quiet place in our own lives and hearts. We've got to start being really true Christians. I mean, if Christianity doesn't work at home, when you're by yourself, it doesn't work. And there's no good saying that it does. We've got to get it together at home. You know, when, I think the truth about me is seen when I'm all by myself in a room. Then you can see how truly dedicated I am, how much time I spend in the Word, how much time, you know, I spend in prayer and so on. And I'm very conscious of the fact it's not my public image that counts, it's my private image really, that really counts. And I long in these days to have a, this feeling that I think they must have had last century, that Christianity was really granite solid underneath, you know? And last century, you look at it, and you know, you might think, well, it was a bit heavy and stodgy and all the rest, but you had some wonderful saints. Now, some Christians know about the saints of the last three or four hundred years. So I decided that I'd do a, spend just a few minutes this afternoon doing an English excursion very quickly through uh, some parts of English history that are not very well known. And I've decided that uh, I will take the period of time between about 500 A.D., and the time that the King James Version actually came out. It's a very little-known era. And to tell you about some of the lovely Christians that have lived in those times. You see, today we have the Word of God freely available, 
And we think that people have always had the Word of God freely available. But do you know that's not the case? For most of English history, the Bible has not been freely available. Most people have not had the access to the Bible and the Word of God that you, my beloved brothers and sisters, have had. And that's why I think the onus is upon us to really show that our lives really do show the glory of God. And so I've taken just a few characters, and I want to tell you just a few details about them. I won't be more than half an hour, probably, you know, going through these characters that I've picked. Some of them you won't have heard of, others you will have heard of, but you'll be quite surprised what they actually did in terms of the Bible. So, let me begin with a chap who actually died, we don't know when he was born, but he died in 680 AD. And his name is difficult to pronounce, I think it probably is pronounced as K. Edmon. C-A-E-D-M-O-N. K. Edmon. K. Edmon, would you put your hands up here if you've heard of your dear brother K. Edmon? Oh, praise the Lord. There are one or two, which is lovely. Dear K. Edmund was a stable boy. He was uh, uneducated entirely. He didn't have uh, the ability to read. He couldn't write. But the one thing that he did have was a lovely singing voice. And he loved to sing. And uh, so he joined the choir at Whitby Abbey up north. And um, he used to sing in the choir there. Now, in the days in which he lived... Everything was done in Latin, right? The whole service was conducted in Latin. The talk was normally done in Latin. The scriptures were read in Latin and so on. And after a while, after he'd sung in the choir for quite a bit, he'd learnt the Latin songs off by heart. Didn't know what they meant, but he'd learnt, learnt them off by heart. He saw the Whitby Abbey completely filled with ordinary folk. And they were all trying to worship God. And he suddenly realised they didn't understand a word of what was going on. They had the fear of God and they had nothing else. So this chap rebelled against it. He said, well, this is ridiculous, he said. The people don't know what's going on. So I vow that I will not now sing in Latin anymore. I'm only going to sing in Anglo-Saxon, which was what the language was in those days. And this chap was lovely. He had a friend who was a monk. And he said to this monk, could you translate Genesis chapter 1 into Anglo-Saxon for me? And the monk translated, we don't know the name of the monk, but he translated Genesis 1 into Anglo-Saxon. Do you know what dear old K. Edmund did? He went all around Britain singing it at the top of his voice. He had the most beautiful voice, he set it to music, and he sang it everywhere. And everywhere he went, it was crammed to the doors just to hear this chap who was a stable boy singing Genesis chapter 1 in Anglo-Saxon. For many of these people, it was the first time they'd ever heard the Bible in their own native tongue. It was so successful that he went back home to Whitby and he asked the chap to translate a bit more of the Bible as well. And it ended up, his whole repertoire was wonderful. He sang about uh, Genesis 1, Genesis 3, about Noah's flood, about the Exodus, about Jonah and Daniel, about the resurrection of Christ, and about heaven and hell. And this chap went preaching the gospel with his voice everywhere he went. That's our dear brother, K. Edmund. We don't know how many people came to Christ through him, but I tell you, it must have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Now, here's a chap most people in Britain have never heard of, who, despite all the odds, so loved the Word of God and wanted it to get out to the people that in his own simple way, he started using what he had, which was a good voice, to actually do it. And this chap did a huge amount to get the Bible out in Anglo-Saxon. In fact, he was so 
successful in his singing that another chap heard of what he was doing. And the second chap I want to talk about is the chap called Aldhelm, A-L-D-H-E-L-M. And as, if you notice, his dates are 640 to 709 AD, and so he overlaps with K. Edmund. Now, he was Bishop of Sherborne, down in Dorset, and he was absolutely thrilled with what K. Edmund was doing. And so he decided, well, why do we have just a few snippets like this? Why don't we actually give the people a good dollop of the Word of God? And so what he did, he sat down and he actually translated the whole book of Psalms into Anglo-Saxon and he tried to get it read so that the people could understand it. And so the Psalms was actually the first book, really, that was released upon the great British people, or the ancient British people as they were. You see? And this man, Aldhelm, actually uh, was prepared to do it. In those days, the churchmen didn't like this because, of course, they felt that uh, the scriptures w should be closed, that it was up to the church to say what scripture said. And they didn't want other people reading it for themselves because they might get a different opinion of what the scripture said. And this was one man who broke with tradition and he actually translated uh, the Psalms into Anglo Saxon. Not very much, but quite a help. Then we come to this fellow, Dear Bede, right, called by most people the Venerable Bede, or by 1066 and all that, as the Venomous Bede. But um, Bede was a very important man indeed. His date, 647 to 735 AD. Now, he again was a chap who was impressed with K. Edmund. Do you see the effect that dear K. Edmund had? A stable boy who couldn't read or write. And this man, who was a tremendous scholar, Bede was, was really deeply affected by him. Bede had normally done all of his work in Latin. He wrote several commentaries of the Bible in Latin. He also wrote a very important book that, we, that we've learned a lot from called The Ecclesiastical History of Britain. And in that book, he talks about some of the lovely saints who've gone before, but all that was written in Latin. It was this man who finally decided that, well, the Psalms were all right, the snippets that K. Edmund had were all right, but what the people really need is the Gospel of John. And late in his life, he started to translate the Gospel of John from Latin into Anglo-Saxon. And do you know it was marvelous, it was a tremendous work, but he completed it on the last day of his life. In fact, lying on his deathbed, he translated the very end of John chapter 21. And after he finished it, he laid down his head and he said, Now at last, my sons have the word of God. You know, and he was so thrilled and he died later on that same evening. This is a lovely man, you know. Again, most people don't know what he's about. But you see, the desire of his heart was that the people would have the word of God to read. Okay, there's Bede. The next chap I'm going to mention, you've all heard about, right? The chap I'm going to mention actually couldn't read or write till he was 12. And then at the age of 12, he started getting a wonderful education and he became a real scholar. His name, and he was a great king of England, was Alfred the Great. We owe a huge amount to dear Alfred the Great. I mean, we know about him because he drove the Danes out of England and he's supposedly supposed to have burnt some cakes, right? In fact, it's the burning of the cake incident that most people, unfortunately, have heard about. In fact, he was a tremendous scholar 
and uh, he loved his people, he loved the Word of God, and it was him who decided that the whole Bible should be translated into Anglo-Saxon. And he set about it, he translated the Old and New Testament into Anglo-Saxon. Now, what a major work. You don't hear about this, do you? That one of Alfred the Great's major works was that he gave us the whole Bible like this. Do you know, he also instituted something else. In his day, you couldn't serve in the army and you couldn't become a profession, a member of a profession, until you passed an exam in Bible knowledge. Now, isn't that a good idea? And uh, he just refused to let anyone who was a cluck over the Bible to have a position of responsibility. He wouldn't allow it at all. And the only people he wanted were people who knew the scriptures and who knew something about doctrine. So you actually had to pass a test in his day in the Bible before you could have a profession or uh, join the army. Incidentally, the Puritans did that when they reached America. Did you know that? They arrived in America and they said this, you're not allowed to vote in an election until you pass a Bible examination. I'd love to bring it back in our day. Today, in America, everyone say, we'll see how primitive they all were. I'd love it, you know, because they, what they reckoned was, well, the governing of a country is so important. We need people who've got the divine perspective in their heads and not just any old person going on. Of course, uh, we can't have it in our day, but I really would love it. These are my dreams, you know. Praise the Lord. Okay, between Alfred the Great and the man that we're looking at today in some detail, John Wycliffe, we have a break in English history. Most of you know that between the time of Alfred the Great and his dates 871 to 901 AD and John Wycliffe, who was, of course, a few centuries further on, we have a major upheaval in English history. For the Normans conquered England. And some people think that William the Conqueror and the Normans were French. No, no, they weren't French. Their name actually comes from Norse men. They were Norsemen. They were Scandinavians. And they actually lived in France for 200 years and all of a sudden decided that Britain was the place for them. And so uh, they decided to move out. And when they arrived in England and conquered England, they didn't like Anglo-Saxon at all. And they decided to change it. And they, in fact, introduced a type of English which was a mixture of French and Scandinavian and a little bit of Anglo-Saxon. We get a few Anglo-Saxon words. Book is an Anglo-Saxon word, you know. It's, it's the word bock, which is the word for bark in a tree. And uh, they used to write on the bark from tree. And that's why they called their writings bock or box. And we get our word book from that. We retained a few of these words, but mainly it was Scandinavian and, uh, uh, and French words that actually came in. It was a mixture of the two. So, after the Norman conquest of Great Britain, Anglo-Saxon had dropped from being the, the normal language. And as a result, people again found that they couldn't read the Bible. And uh, the only Bible that they had was the Latin Bible again. And so it was in response to this need of the ordinary people that John Wycliffe came along his dates, 1330 to 1384, and he decided that he would actually produce a translation, an English translation of the Bible, so that the people could actually understand it and could read it for themselves. And I have to say this to you, that the thing that drove him on, well, there were two things that drove him on. First of all, the Latin Bible that they had during his time was very inaccurate, and he knew, he was a scholar, he knew it was inaccurate. And secondly, he didn't like the fact that the church was dictating doctrine. 
and he felt that some of the doctrine coming from the church hierarchy at that time uh, was wrong, and so he decided it's much better to get an accurate translation of the Bible and let the people look at it and ask God to reveal the doctrine. And so he did. And may I say that the Pope in those days, of course, hated what he was doing, and he actually called him a heretic and, and all the rest. He produced the Old Testament, I think it was 1380 that the Old Testament came sorry, 1380 that the New Testament came out. It was 1382 AD that the Old Testament came out and both were denounced and the authorities were really against this man. I won't say any more about him because I'm sure the film will uh, say something about him. Okay, but English was changing all the time. And so we go on a little further and we come to another chap, Tyndale, T-Y-N-D-A-L. L.E., and I hope that most of you have heard of Tyndale, his dates 1494 to 1539, and he again wanted a translation of the Bible. English had progressed so that even John Wycliffe's edition of the Bible was difficult to understand, so it was essential that they had a new one. And instead of translating it from the Latin Bible, he actually went back to a Greek text of the Bible that a man called Erasmus had produced, and he translated it straight from the Greek into the type of English that they had then. Do you know this man suffered the most dreadful persecution? This man was terribly persecuted. So badly persecuted in England that he left and he went to Germany to complete his work. And there he completed his Bible. And uh, Archbishop Cranmer was opposed him in the most dreadful way. And so was Henry VIII. They both tried to stop this man. But despite their opposition, 600 copies of his Bible came to England in 1526. Right? And there was tremendous outcry about it. They wanted to get these Bibles. Do you know the lovely Bible-believing Christians in these days had to smuggle these Bibles into their homes and hide them away. It was punishable by death. Finally, even on the continent, the authorities caught up with him, and I think it was Charles V who uh, decided that this man should be stopped. And uh, our dear brother, Tyndale, was strangled, and then his body was burnt at the stake for the word of God. His last words were these, Lord God, he said, open the eyes of the King of England. That was his last prayer. These are wonderful men. You know, they really are. We have not seen their like in our present generation yet, but I believe we will one day. And dear William Tyndale strangled to death and then his body burnt. But it was a major leap forward as far as the provision of the Bible in our native language was concerned. Two other Bibles I, I would like to mention just in passing. Just after Tyndale's day, the Coverdale Bible came out in 1535, and two years after that, in 1537, the Matthews Bible came out, and uh, Matthews Bible was simply a combination of Tyndale and Coverdale. And do you know, these were the favorite Bibles of this particular era. They all loved these Bibles very much indeed. And uh, this was taken as absolute rote, this translation, the Matthews translation. This was the popular one of the day. But then we come down, and here's where our excursion in English history will come to a rather rapid end, because I want to get on to the film. We come down to the time that it was decided to have a new version of the Bible. In these days, the Puritans were crying out, saying that the Bible hasn't been correctly translated, and so they asked for a brand new translation to come. And it was lovely, because Tyndale's prayer that God would open 
the eyes of the King of England was answered through a certain king who was on the throne of rather dubious morals, I have to say, but his name was James I. And James I came along, he was James VI of Scotland. He was an, an absolute Protestant. Now, his mother was, of course, the queen executed, Mary, Queen of Scots, who was executed by Elizabeth I. She was a staunch Roman Catholic. She wanted to make Britain Catholic. And, of course, she was executed finally. I don't think Elizabeth wanted to, but I think she finally had to execute her. But she was put to death, and her little child, who was James VI of Scotland, James I of England, or was to become James I, was taken, and he was given a Protestant education. And he became a real outlandish Protestant. He was also given a wonderful education. He learnt Latin, Hebrew, and Greek as well. well. Now, that was quite something. We had a king of England who could actually... You know, who was an expert in these particular languages. And when the Puritans asked for a copy of a, a new translation of the Bible, James, who read the Bible in the original manuscripts that they had in those days, agreed that the translations hadn't been very good. So he was the chap who decided that a new translation was necessary. He paid for it himself, cost £3,500, which uh, is quite a lot of money in those days, uh, several million, and it took four years to actually complete and he chose 54 scholars and said, could you please translate the Bible from the original manuscripts? Half of them were experts in Hebrew, half were experts in Greek, and uh, he let them go at the task. Seven of them died before the task began, so that left 47. And he divided them up into six groups. There were two in Oxford, one doing Old Testament, one doing New Testament, two in Cambridge, one doing Old Testament, one doing New Testament, and two in Westminster, one doing Old Testament, one doing New Testament. The funny thing about it is there was no coordination between these three. They took a third of the Bible each, you see, and there's no coordination, and that's why it's so amusing that if you read the Bible, sometimes the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit, and sometimes he's called the Holy Ghost. Have you noticed that? Well, it's the same word in Greek, pneuma, and uh, the Oxford group decided that, in fact, uh, they would translate pneuma with spirit. The Westminster group decided they'd translate it with ghost. So you can tell which part was translated in which place according to the use of the word that they did, and there was no standardization between them. Anyway, four years later, they completed the task, and out came what we call the King James Version, and it was loathed immediately. Everyone hated it. English have reached a pretty high level. I mean, it's the days of Shakespeare, you know, the days of uh, Spencer and, and others, so, and Dunn, you know, and English was very beautiful, but they loathed it. I mean, everyone was against it. The Catholics hated it, the Protestants hated it. The Calvinists hated it, the Arminians hated it. The Puritans hated it, and the churchmen hated it. And when they saw this opposition, they thought, well, we must have it just about right then. <laughs> right? Praise the Lord. No one espoused it at all. But in fact, no one wanted it. And it was such a major problem. I mean, you know some people today think there is no Bible except for the King James. They act like that, you know. I'll tell you why I still use the King James tomorrow, but it's not that reason at all. And they said, oh, dear. They hated it in these days. They wanted the Matthews Bible, you see. In our day, people revere it. In those days, it didn't have a champion. And finally, the only way they were going to bring it into general acceptance was to get King James himself to write a bit 
at the front of the Bible. And in fact, you'll find in every King James version of the Bible, they've still got the words, you know, written to King James at the front. And it's because of that that he espoused the Bible that it was generally accepted. You see? So, with the King James Version, the Bible became generally available to all people. That's just a quick excursion through English history, just for your edification and your enjoyment. For every one of these, there are at least a hundred, I would reckon, in English history that you could uh, uh, actually name. And we'll be meeting all these lovely people up in heaven, praise God. And I do hope that in our generation, we might see champions for the Word of God equal to some of these people. So when you hear of dear Alfred the Great again, don't think of burning cakes, think of the whole Bible translated into Anglo-Saxon, right? I could speak on other people. Dear old King Canute is a chap, you know, who is uh, much maligned in English history. It's just along the coast here, you know, that he set up his throne and ordered the sea to go back. And everyone laughs at him. This is our brother, dear King Canute. He's our brother in Christ. And everyone was revering him as a god, and he was saying, I'm not a god, stop it, I'm not a god. And they still kept revering him as a god. So finally he said, right, he said, well, go down to Bosom, and I'll show you I'm not a god. And he put his throne down there, and as the tide was coming in, he said, stop! And he was inundated with water. And everyone laughs, you know, the king who tried to stop the sea. No, he didn't try to stop the sea. If the sea had stopped, he would have been furious. He was trying to say, there's only one God, and I'm not God. That's what this lovely man was trying to say. Well, English history is full of lovely people like this, and most of them are terribly maligned. You know, I doubt whether Alfred the Great ever burnt the cakes. I'm sure he didn't. But there we are. Here they are, lovely, lovely people, either forgotten or maligned. That's the general picture. So as we come to John Wycliffe, may we remember that he really did exist, Right? This man really did fight for the word of God. And I know that I've been called to fight for the word of God. You know? Well, I don't know whether we're going to have days of peace ahead or we're going to have days of persecution. But all I know is in these days of peace we've got to do as much as we can now to get the word of God out. I long for the day when in Britain we can say that the word of God covers the earth in this place as the waters cover the sea where we will have Christians who, instead of being taken in by every wind of doctrine that comes, might know of a certainty what the Bible says, so that they can actually resist and stop the wind of doctrine with them, and that we might be mature in our individual lives. I'm very grateful to Tony Chamberlain, who's uh, a friend of mine from Westergate, for coming in to actually show the film. And now I think we'll go straight into the film. The meeting tonight is 7.30, and come ready to praise the Lord. Hallelujah.